Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Welcome to The Cut on Tuesdays on Thursdays. I'm Stella Bugby, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. This is How I Get It Done, the cut series about ambitious women and the way they live. How they deal with their inboxes, people's feelings, their grocery shopping, their morning routines. It's part advice column, part love letter, part voyeurism. This week, I spoke with Nora McInerney the author of No Happy Endings and It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too, and The Hot Young Widows Club. She also hosts a podcast called Terrible, Thanks for Asking. You may notice a theme. I'm kind of a tragedy connoisseur a little bit, and that is because in 2014, my husband Aaron died of brain cancer, and he died six weeks after my dad died of cancer, and my dad died five days after I lost my second pregnancy. So, I'm fun. Nora was left with the son she'd had with her husband Aaron a year and a half before he passed away. Within two years, she'd written her books and started her podcast, but during that time, she had to figure out how to live her life while grieving. In the first episode of her podcast, she says, grief isn't just crying, not just a facial expression. A grieving person can do a lot of things like laugh and go to the movies and go to the grocery shop and raise a child. But Nora told me another thing someone can do while grieving. Go out to dinner with men. I was 31. I was a mom. I spent all my time like trying to survive and having a child like with me at all times and just to be at dinner with somebody. And it was so intoxicating to just be around a man, even one that I wasn't physically attracted to, but who would like pull my chair out and like pay for dinner and and buy me a drink that I just was so, so starved for it because it's so hard. Like skin hunger is a thing, like that need to be touched. People need that. And I for sure had that. I would like hug my friend's husbands and be like, Sorry, I'm not letting go. Like, <laughs> sorry, this, sorry, this feels way better than I thought it would. Nora has written about how right after her husband died, it actually wasn't hard to get things done. Shopping for a funeral dress wasn't a problem, for instance. Sadness, anger, grief, they were manageable at the beginning. But then, she says, they stopped being manageable. At some point, your brain sort of unwraps all of those feelings and hands them to you at really inopportune times. And I would be somewhere completely unemotional and someone would ask me something and it would hit me as if I were hearing it for the first time and I would basically just start crying and be like, oh my God, my husband's dead. And the person would be like, ma'am, this is Starbucks. We need you to just <laughs> go. <laughs> we just need your order and your first name. That's it. That's all we need. Wait, so back up for one second. When did you find out that he was dying? We knew that he had a brain tumor 
on October 31st, 2011, and we had been dating for a year, and he had a seizure at work, and I went to the ER, and we both were like, oh, weird. It just did not seem that serious, and they had put him through an MRI, and they told us that night um, that he had had a brain tumor, and I looked at him. We were laying in his hospital bed, and I was like, you're marrying me now. Um, and he was like, you can't marry someone who has a brain tumor. Like I, and I was like, oh, I will, and we will be married immediately. <laughs> it was very romantic, and I remember you know, his mom saying to me, like, are you sure it could get really bad? And I was like, uh, yeah. And that's kind of the point, right, of being married? Like, good things and bad things? Seems like maybe you jump into love really fast. Like, you met this man, you find out this very upsetting news about him, and your reaction is, we're going to get married. I think I think I'm a decisive. I think I'm a decisive person. Also, it's like I'm in the Midwest. I was 27. That's like old maid status here. But I had also done I had done my fair share of not falling in love, if you know what I mean. Uh, like there's there's the the world is littered with men I didn't marry. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was just pretty evident right at the beginning. Like, oh, like this is like we just fit. So you guys find out he has a brain tumor. And then you decide you're going to have a child, knowing that he is about to face all these medical traumas? We knew that he had stage 4 brain cancer. We knew that that was incurable. And so before he had started chemo and radiation, like, you know, we had like two weeks and he went to the, to the, 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 I mean, I don't even, I don't know what they call it technically, but basically a place where you store your sperm and he did the sperm storage and... You need a lot more than you think you do. Um, I don't know that right away we're like, yeah, you know, we definitely should have kids. But we went to Disney World with his niece and nephew. And the the first night we were there, I was like, do you want kids? And he was like, yeah, I really do. And I also am so afraid that I would leave you alone with them. And I told him, "I, I can do that. Like, what a liar I was to have told him I would be okay. Mm-hmm. Because the, the the reality of it was, oh, my God, how would I possibly do this alone? Like, how would I do any of it alone? Take me back to that pregnancy. You are experiencing the first time of changing your own body, and Aaron is undergoing chemo at the same time? Is that, yeah, I have that right? Yeah, it was... Yeah, he was go- he was still going through chemo when I was pregnant, and his when I was about eight months pregnant, right before I had Ralph, um, we went to his. You know, every six weeks he would get an MRI, and they would look at his brain and say, "Oh no, it's the brain tumor is not growing; it's not back." Uh, or they would, you know, this one time uh, they said it's back; it's it's growing, and it's grown, you know, uh, a lot. Since the last time we saw you, there's nothing, and now there's something. And so we have to take care of it right away. And I was weeks away from having our baby. And Aaron's treatment changed immediately. He had brain surgery at a month before Ralph was born, and then his chemo switched from being something. You know, it was just pills he took at home to being something where he was checked into the hospital for three days at a time. But I do remember him going into that brain surgery on December 26th, and my due date was 
the, the 22nd of January, which is also when Ralph was born. And just thinking, yeah, he might not be here for any of it. Since this is called How I Get It Done, this podcast, how yeah. in that year after all this trauma and you have a newborn, you're at home, are you working? What were you doing? Uh, yeah, I was working like all the time. I feel like the year after, I just felt like I have to do everything. I, I wrote a book, my first book, It's Okay to Laugh. I I pitched this podcast that I have. I traveled all the time. I would go wherever I had a friend where I could stay for free. And Ralph and I would only buy one-way tickets so that I didn't have to commit to coming back to Minnesota. Wow. And I, I like, I did freelance copywriting. I was just trying to cobble together a living and 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 just stay in motion so that this crushing reality couldn't catch me. Were you able to do anything nice for yourself during those, you know, first two years? I did so many things that were not super nice to myself. Like, I drank a ton, like, a lot, like, all the time. And... I spent so much money that I didn't have. If I wanted something, I was like, I'm going to get it. My husband's dead. Who's, hmm, try to, try to correct my behavior. You know, I, I really tried to look good every day. That was kind of my thing. I was like, well, if anyone sees me, I don't want them to feel sorry for me. So I'm going to have makeup on. I'm going to have red lipstick on. I will always be dressed. I will always look good. And I think you actually formed a club, right, called the Hot Young Widows Club? Yes, Yes, the Hot Young Widows Club. At first, it was it was like 30 people in a Facebook group. And now it's like 3,000 people or 4,000 people in an online community. And it grows every day because people keep dying. And <laughs> it's just like a, it's just a safe space to grieve and to not be told what you should be doing. You know, like, oh, you should be grateful that you had him. You should be glad that you fell in love. Yeah. Like, you should think, you know, look on the bright side, be happy. And um, so we don't do that which is really important. And I had thought that I didn't need anything or anyone that first year I did not. I mean, I didn't go to therapy. I was like, what are they going to tell me? I'm sad. And uh, no, it was actually really great. Once I went to therapy, I was like, oh my gosh, this is very valuable. Oh, medication. Yeah, probably need it. Truly, all of these things, like the actual work of living is self-care. It's not it's not all like meditation. It's it's taking the time to book yourself an appointment with a doctor who can refer you to a therapist that she thinks would be a good fit. And then making sure you actually keep that appointment. That is not easily celebrated on Instagram, but it's so important. So on a really practical level, like how do you compose an email or pitch a show? Or come up with a book proposal while you're also devastated. I, okay, so I I love that you asked that question because those are, I always want to know, like, literally, but like how? How did you do this thing? My agent, the woman who became my agent, had sent me just a condolence email. She was like, I read your, the obituary. It was really incredible. I'm thinking of you. And um, I replied and I said, thank you so much. And she said, you know, when in five or 10 years, when you want to write a book, like be in touch. And I was like, oh, I want to write one now. And I uh, told her I would get her a book proposal. And then I just sat and stared 
at my ceiling for weeks, and I went down to Arizona, where Erin's sister lives, and just sat and stared at her ceiling for weeks and did not do a book proposal at all. Um, Didn't really sleep, drank a lot of white wine, watched a lot of Real Housewives. That was a good outlet for me emotionally. And then uh, Jess sent me an example of a book proposal. (laughs) And I was like, okay, that's helpful. And um, I attempted and sent it to her. And she was like, oh, my God, Um, this is no. So she sort of helped me along with that. I think we went back and forth like a couple times. And then it was time to write it. And I I was not sleeping at this time either. I would be unable to go to sleep. I would just stay up. I struggled so much. And when I finally sent a draft to Julia, my editor, she was like, "Uh, I didn't hear from her for two weeks. And I was like, wow, I'm a perfect writer. (laughs) And she did call and she was like, "Um, uh, so this is, this seems like this was really... um, therapeutic for you to write and um Ouch. and it's so great you should yeah she's like you just keep it for yourself like or throw it away either one Oof. and uh julia said to me you wrote this like it's what you think someone wants to hear about a sad story and i don't think you're a sad story and i don't think you think aaron's a sad story so why don't you write it like you're living it Coming up, Nora explains what it was like to grieve her husband while falling in love with another man. She also explains how she was terrified to be seen with that man in public. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays on Thursdays. I'm talking with Nora McInerney, author of the book No Happy Endings and the host of the podcast Terrible, Thanks for Asking. In 2014, Nora's husband Aaron died of brain cancer. Five days later, her dad died. A month after that, she had a miscarriage. And then a year later, she found herself falling in love again. I asked her about what that was like. You you mentioned being in love in your very first podcast episode with two men at the same time. And so tell our listeners a little bit about what you mean. Like, So you had Aaron in your life... And then you fell in love with a new person. Can you tell yeah, us about that I met, story? I met Matthew a year after Aaron died. And our first date was on the one-year anniversary of Aaron entering hospice, November 11th. And a year later, I'm sitting across the table from this sort of quiet, sweet guy with these giant blue eyes and he's so visibly nervous which Aaron never literally never was nervous ever in his life and definitely not around me and I'm trying to have dinner and I just keep thinking like a year ago I was a year ago I was writing Aaron's obituary and I kept having to bring myself back to this present moment but that tension existed immediately of is it okay for me to feel these two things at once And also that shame. Like, what if someone sees me? What if someone sees me out here? Minneapolis is a small town. What if someone sees me at dinner with this guy? And and it hasn't even been a year. It'll be a year and two weeks. And it feels like a magic number that people would like to see. Mm. You were thinking that actually in the moment. What if somebody sees me? 
literally thinking that. I took I took the seat facing in, like facing into the restaurant versus out towards the busy street. Here's the thing. I was so afraid of it that on a different occasion, Matthew and I were out together and I did run into someone I knew and we were, Matthew and I were sitting at the bar facing the bar and I turned away from him to talk to this person and I kind of acted like I was just at this bar alone. Wow. Did, and that did this Matthew was just, know that that's what was happening? Oh, yeah. Yes, he did. He did. And he was like, I understand that. Tell me about getting pregnant again with Matthew. I went to, I have always taken pregnancy tests. I took pregnancy tests when I was still a virgin. Like in high school, I was like, <laughs> I was like, you know, just, on just the to be chance. safe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I took a pregnancy test and I was like, oh my God. And I was so happy. <laughs> and then I was just as instantly like afraid and ashamed and afraid and ashamed. Afraid and ashamed. Those are the two main feelings that I had. Why were you ashamed? I was so, I mean, I was afraid that people would say like, oh, good. Like she's pregnant. Oof. Now it's over. You know, like she got a, she got a guy. Gonna have another baby. You know, it's all over. And I was so afraid it would like invalidate, like any sort of joy or newness would invalidate what I had with Aaron and what I felt for Aaron. And, oh, my God, like, what a fraud I am. Like, yeah, You thought people it, would judge like you I'm, harshly? Yeah, I was judging myself. Like, oh, my God, really? Like, so so now what? Now you're just happy? Now you're just, just going to have another baby? A new mm. baby? But you were happy. <laughs> I was happy. I yeah. was happy. I just couldn't. It just felt like stolen happiness like I just like could not sit there with it so now I have a different kind of shame which is like how dare you not just be happy about your happiness so how did you deal with with that with telling people about that pregnancy poorly very poorly I didn't tell anybody really um a couple friends but I didn't put it on Instagram ever and also like I don't know. I just, I didn't want to tell anyone. I didn't want to have to explain it. And I didn't want to have to hear people say like, oh, that's so great. Like, oh, what a happy ending. Oh, that's so, mm. So you are now a mother of two and a stepmother to two. Are they in the house with you? All of you guys? Yes. All together? All of us. Yes. We've got a, we've got a, we got a four pack. How do you make time for, you know, your podcast, your books? Yeah. Well, now I'm now I'm very uh scheduled with my time. So I have uh I have a, a I'm I'm basically just a big old freelancer. <laughs> um, I have like a contract where I make this podcast, I write books, I have, you know, a a nonprofit that I that I run and they're all uh, they're all time consuming. Children are very time consuming, but I I have my days really planned out. So I go to the gym every morning at six a.m. because otherwise I would not go. If I don't go at six a.m., I'm not going at six p.m. I come home, I go into my office, I shut the door, I write for two hours, and then I go to one of the offices that needs me. And on Thursdays, usually I have blank space. So that's time for me to go to an appointment that I'd like to. It's time for me to like run a midweek errand. Hmm. And um, and then also for me to just 
be home and not be on my uh, phone and computer at night. I'm also really pushing back against all of this like constant work. I don't have email on my phone anymore. Oh, that's a good um, hack. Yeah, I'll just check my email. I'll check my email in the morning and I'll check my email in the afternoon. And like, otherwise, I guess if it's if it's life and death, you'll call me, you know, <laughs> but if it's a true priority, you'll dial a phone number. But like, I, I just you we give ourselves all the time to the urgent at the expense of like the truly important. Obviously, you interview a lot of people going through a lot of grief and loss. What advice would you give our listeners um, dealing with personal trauma or loss, you know, right I after that? Take, yeah, take your time with it. Like it, it will take you time even to not be okay because at first when something bad happens and when death happens, sickness happens, like there's so much to do at first. There's so much to occupy you. You know, Aaron, Aaron was diagnosed and I was like, okay, I can manage a chemo schedule. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And all of those things are important. You know, planning a funeral, that's important. All of these things give you purpose. And then it ends and it's so quiet. And it's really easy to try to rush through that part and to try to be okay so that you don't have to bum people out at brunch and to just get caught up in like the performance of okayness. And I think really the important thing is that you are doing this, whatever this is, for the first time. Every single loss, every single thing that happens to you is a first. It's the first time this specific thing has happened. So you might not know how to do it. You might not know what you need. Is there a specific thing you might advise? Like you mentioned, you drank a lot. Is there, are there any specific things you might tell people? Oh my God. Yeah. Take it easy on the booze. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on How I Get It Done. Truly so excited to be here. This episode was produced by Chris Neary and was edited by Lynn Levy. Mixing by Sam Baer. Our theme song is 9 to 5 by the one and only Dolly Parton. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. <laughs>